Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Septic shock is a life-threatening condition associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Optimizing treatment of septic shock has long been a target of medical investigation. For decades, corticosteroids have been used as an adjunct therapy with many different approaches and regimens investigated. Hydrocortisone has been the mainstay in corticosteroid therapy. However, there is controversy surrounding the benefit of adjunctive mineralocorticoid therapy. Fludrocortisone is at the center of the mineralocorticoid debate. Join pharmacist Haley Thompson to review evidence in this shocking debate. Corticosteroid therapy in the treatment of septic shock has been a long debated topic. And now we have more to discuss. Over the past 60 years, we've asked ourselves, who do we use these therapies in? When do we use them? Which ones and for how long? But one of the most debated areas is the use of fludrocortisone in addition to hydrocortisone. With new studies coming out earlier this spring, we've brought the spotlight back onto fludrocortisone. And together, we're gonna to take a deep dive into the evidence and into the recommendations to see, do we have a shocking update to the treatment of septic shock? Today, we are going to talk about how corticosteroids can work in the body in the treatment of septic shock, review the evidence and recommendations that we have currently, and think about what a potential role could be for inclusion of fludrocortisone. It's important to understand sepsis and septic shock because it is associated with high mortality and high morbidity in our survivors, as well as a large financial burden. And when we're talking about diseases that are so prevalent and it's so impactful for our patients, it's important to define exactly what we are looking at. And for sepsis, this is the dysregulated immune response by the host to an infection. And this is complemented by organ dysfunction. And when this progresses, we have the most severe form of sepsis, which is septic shock, where we begin to see the hypoperfusion and circulatory and metabolic abnormalities that can increase patients' risk of mortality. So now we need to understand how do we treat septic shock? We have standards of care that include fluid resuscitation with a minimum of 30 milliliters per kilogram for our patients, appropriate antibiotics started as early as we suspect an infection, and the use of vasopressors, again, to keep mean arterial pressure above select goals. There have been multiple adjunct treatments that have been investigated in combination with these standards of care, but the one that we're going to focus on today is the use of corticosteroids. Now, it's important to ask the question when we have so many different adjunct therapies that we've looked at, why are we focusing on corticosteroids? How can these offer benefit and are critically ill? An important piece to understand this question is looking at relative adrenal insufficiency. So in our normal and healthy patients, we see the HPA axis or the hypothalamus anterior, anterior pituitary and adrenal cortex functioning appropriately to produce cortisol to react to acute levels of stress in the body. However, in our critically ill patients, we can see dysfunction happen in multiple areas. 
where we can see signaling along the HPA axis become disrupted. We can see changes in the metabolism of cortisol, and we can also see resistance at our target tissues, all inhibiting our ability to either produce or appropriately react to levels of cortisol in acute stress. And what this means in our critically ill is that we could have critically ill-related corticosteroid insufficiency, or CRC, which can come as a constellation of any of these different dysfunctions, leading to patients' inability to appropriately react to stress. Now, how can corticosteroids help here? It's important to understand that the corticosteroids have two different ways in which they can exert their benefits through molecular mechanisms where we can see alterations in gene expression, which will take hours sometimes for us to see these benefits, but we also can see a more rapid benefit through our non-molecular mechanisms here. And you might see these two different colored boxes. These darker blue are our glucocorticoid-specific benefits, with the lighter blue being our mineralocorticoid benefits, as there is some overlap, but also distinction between these two different types of corticosteroids. And I've kind of given away the plot here that we have two different types. And the two that we have the most evidence for in the treatment of septic shock is hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone. Hydrocortisone is an active drug, while fludrocortisone is a prodrug that requires activation in the body. We are able to target both the glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid receptor with hydrocortisone, while fludrocortisone demonstrates a higher affinity for the mineralocorticoid receptor. We have estimated equivalent doses between these two medications, but it's important to note that this is based off of sodium retention, not necessarily the activity and changes in gene transcription that we see upon binding of these receptors. In fact, we actually see a 125-fold greater activity response with the binding of fludrocortisone compared to hydrocortisone when they bind to the mineralocorticoid receptor. We also can see overlap in some of our well-known side effects of corticosteroids, but also some unique ones as displayed on the slide here. So now that we understand these two medications, it's important to come back. So I'd like to start with our first question. If everyone could please pull up Poll Everywhere or text Mayo Rx to 22333. My first question is what is one of the theorized benefits of corticosteroids in septic shock? Is it A, alpha-1 agonism, B, stimulating antidiuretic hormone release, C, supplementing low cortisol levels, or D, increasing cardiac output? I'm seeing some responses come in here, and I'm seeing almost a tie between supplementing low levels of cortisol and increasing cardiac output. And here, the answer that um, I was shooting for was C, supplementing low levels of cortisol, since we did see CRC or that critical illness-related in corticosteroid insufficiency. So with supplementing these low levels, we can return some of that function that our endogenous steroids are not able to accomplish with the introduction of exogenous. When we're looking at alpha-1 agonism, this is not part of the impact of corticosteroids, not part of their mechanism of action, and this can be targeted with our vasopressor therapies in that standard of care. Stimulating antidiuretic hormone is also not part of the action of steroids, but does help with fluid retention in the body. 
And with D, increasing cardiac output, we do know that we can have some tachycardia with the use of corticosteroids. However, we do not see a change in stroke volume. And when we increase that heart rate, it can be transient. So it doesn't allow for that sustained cardiac output benefit that we might see with some of our other medications, such as inotropes. Thank you all for participating. So it's important when we're looking at how did we get to the use of corticosteroids in septic shock, that there are four main trials that have led to the evidence that we have up to our most recent guidelines published in 2021. And we're going to start at the very beginning with a non-study in 2002. This study compared hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone in combination for seven days to placebo. And they looked at patients with septic shock and evidence of multi-organ failure for their inclusions. Patients were randomized anywhere between three to eight hours after presenting with septic shock and were a majority of medical admission with pulmonary source of infection and an estimated mortality of 50 to 75%. Of note with this study, we do see a lower use of norepinephrine with about one-third of the patients using norepinephrine. However, those that did use it had very high doses requiring, on average, one microgram per kilogram per minute. When we compare this to the second study that we have at this time, at a similar time, is the Corticus study in 2008. And in this study, we compared placebo to hydrocortisone for five days which was then tapered to a total of 11 days. The patients included in this study were those with septic shock, but did not require evidence of multi-organ dysfunction. And these patients could be randomized all the way up to 72 hours after presenting with septic shock. These patients were also a minority of medical admission, had a lower estimated mortality rate with their SAPS-2 score, and had lower rates of mechanical ventilation. We do, however, see a higher rate of norepinephrine use in this patient population and closer to our more expected um, doses of norepinephrine with 0.4 to 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Now, when we look at the results of this study, we're going to break this down into some chunks. So starting with the first bullet point here, the ACTH stim test or adrenocorticotropin hormone stimulation test was previously used to help identify patients that we thought might be good targets for corticosteroid therapy because if they were not responsive to this test, we could suspect that they had HPA axis dysregulation and might have relative adrenal insufficiency. So this test was used to find who might have this and who do we think might not necessarily meet that adrenal insufficiency. And in a non at all, we compared those responders and non-responders or those that were relatively insufficient to those that were not relatively insufficient and saw a mortality difference with a higher mortality rate in those that were non-responsive. So we saw a benefit and patients that were relatively adrenally insufficient. In Corticus, we repeated this study. However, we did not see a difference between the patients that were identified as relatively adrenally insufficient and those that were not. When we continue to look at the primary and secondary outcomes, we see that Anon saw a mortality benefit with the use of corticosteroids compared to placebo. And this was primarily driven by those patients that were relatively adrenally insufficient as it did make up a majority of the patients that they studied. 
we did not see this benefit in corticus. We did see some secondary benefits with vasopressor therapy. We saw a faster time to reversal of shock or our ability to withdraw vasopressor therapy in Anon and also in corticus. However, we did not see a difference in ICU or hospital stay. When we're looking at the safety concerns from these trials, there were not any identified in the Anon trial, but in Corticus, there was signals for increased risk of superinfection, hyperglycemia, and hypernatremia. Now, when we're comparing these results, there are some differences in the study that we need to keep in mind. In Anon et al., we had patients with a higher level of acuity on inclusion. We had faster time to randomization and our ability to start corticosteroid treatment. We also can see a difference in the intervention that was made. So this really kind of calls into question, what are some of these differences that might be driving the differences and benefit that we are seeing here? These led to the septic shock guidelines that were first published in 2004, all the way up to our updates in 2016. In 2004, we saw the recommendation made for hydrocortisone therapy for patients that were not having adequate response to fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy. For flugicortisone, there was not a top-line recommendation made, but a comment was made that some experts may consider the use of flugicortisone in addition to hydrocortisone. And for the ACTH stim test, we also did not see a top-line recommendation here, but it was suggested that it could be used to identify patients who were relatively adrenally insufficient and may benefit from corticosteroid therapy. In 2008, we saw a change in that ACTH stimulation test recommendation, since in corticus, we did not see a difference in mortality benefit based on those who were adrenally insufficient and those that were not, which led to a recommendation for this test to no longer be used to identify patients who may or may not benefit. These recommendations were carried out in 2012 and 2016, and when we see these blue dashes, we did not see any comments made on flugicortisone or the ACTH stem test in 2012 and then 2016, respectively. After the publication of these trials, we had to wait 10 years from Corticus to have the Approaches trial published in 2018. This was a seven-year trial that compared placebo to the combination of hydrocortisone and flugicortisone. Once again, the patients that we saw included were septic shock patients that had multi-organ failure evidenced by failure in at least two systems. Patients were randomized within 24 hours and once again were a majority of medical admission with an estimated mortality of 50 to about 75% with a pulmonary infection. Here we see higher rates of norepinephrine use compared to Anon and even compared to Corticus. But once again, we see high doses of norepinephrine with greater than one microgram per kilogram per minute used on average in these patients. So a population very similar to what we saw in Anon in 2002. The other study that was published in 2018 was the adrenal trial which compared hydrocortisone given as a continuous infusion to placebo. And these patients had evidence of septic shock, but not a requirement for multi-organ failure. 
We saw these patients randomized within 24 hours, and once again saw a majority of medical admission with pulmonary source of infection as the main source and requiring mechanical ventilation. Here, we saw that our norepinephrine use in vasopressors were dichotomized, so those above 15 micrograms per minute and those below 15 micrograms per minute. And when we compare this to our average 70 kilogram patient, this is about 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute. So a very different dose than what we have seen in our previous trials. When we look at the results, we can see that the ACTH stim test was completed in the approaches trial. However, that was partially due to when the trial started since it did take seven years for this trial to complete, the recommendations for the use of that ACTH stim test did change. So the mortality benefit based on that relative adrenal insufficiency was not reported in this trial. And we did not see it completed in the adrenal trial. When we compare the mortality benefit here, we saw mortality benefits in the approaches trial, but not in the adrenal trial. We did see benefits, however, in vasopressor therapy and the mechanical ventilation benefit in adrenal. However, we saw numerical benefit in approaches for the mechanical ventilation, but it did not reach statistical significance. And for the vasopressor benefit, we did see a faster time to reversal of shock in adrenal and more vasopressor-free days in approaches. But a big point here, and it was the first time it was included in any of these studies, was this organ failure-free days. And we saw this in the approaches study, where we are using the SOFA score to look at improvements in organ failure and to see, do we have better outcomes here? And this could be an indicator for when we're comparing some of these benefits for why we are able to see a mortality benefit in one trial looking at our ability to provide more organ-free days to patients with the use of fludrocortisone and hydrocortisone compared to placebo. When we look at the safety concerns from these trials, it's important to say that it's a yes question mark. So with the approaches trial, what we did see was increased risk of hyperglycemia. Um, and we saw this as well in adrenal, but counts were low in the approaches trial and we didn't see large differences with mainly hyperglycemia being accounted for blood glucose greater than 150, which we also know we can control for with insulin. We did not see concerns for increased risk of gastrointestinal bleeding or for superinfection. Similar to what we saw when we compared Anon to Corticus, we once again see a trial that demonstrated benefit and one that did not in mortality. We once again have a trial that included patients with evidence of multi-organ failure and one that did not. A difference to the time in which patients received their corticosteroids. And it's important to note these differences when we are comparing the results of these studies. It's also important to consider the timeline that we had here, with our first evidence being presented in 2002 to these most recent trials in 2018. It's important to note that even the standards of care and recommendations for how we treat septic shock have evolved over time. So some of the recommendations and even how we defined sepsis and septic shock have changed. And this also is something that we need to take into account as we evaluate these trials and see how do they fit in with our current patient populations. 
After these two trials were published in 2018, we have our most recent update to the septic shock guidelines in 2021. We did not see fludrocortisone or the ACTH stem test commented on in these most recent updates. And we saw once again, a recommendation for hydrocortisone therapy to be considered in patients with septic shock that were not having adequate response to fluids or vasopressors. So this leads to a, how did we get here with these four studies? We need to look at them all together to understand some of these recommendations that have been made up to this point. When we look and compare, one of the big things that might catch your eye and potentially as we were discussing them earlier might have caught your ear is this mortality benefit difference. And the two trials that had demonstrated mortality benefit in corticosteroids over placebo were the Anon et al. trial in 2002 and the Approaches trial in 2018. When we compare these two studies to the others to see what may have contributed to some of these differences, it's important to note that the acuity level of the patients were different. These were the two trials that did include patients that had to require multi-organ failure. There's a difference in the intervention as well. So this has really led to some questions of, well, where did we derive this benefit from? And this is a question that I would like to ask you all. So if we could please pull out poll everywhere again, which is a unique outcome found in the studies that had the combination of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone compared to those that looked at hydrocortisone alone? Is it A, decreased rate of mortality, B, increase in ventilator-free days, C, increase in vasopressor-free days, or D, decreased duration of ICU stay? Seeing some results roll in here, and I am agreeing with the majority here who are reporting A, a decreased rate of mortality. Now, B or D are also important benefits to note with corticosteroid therapy. However, they were not unique to the combination of fludrocortisone and hydrocortisone. In the studies where we compared hydrocortisone to placebo alone, so in our adrenal and in our corticus trials, we did still see benefits and increase in vasopressor-free days, as well as ventilator-free days, and decreased duration of ICU stay. So we see these benefits regardless of whether or not fludrocortisone is added to therapy, but when we add it, we are able to see this decreased rate of mortality, which begs the question then, why is it not a top-line recommendation? Why have we not been using this therapy if we have evidence that it might impact a big patient-centered outcome? And there are a couple pieces of evidence that we need to look at to better understand why there is some skepticism around these results. And the first one is the COITS study done in 2010. This was a three-year study that was a two-by-two two factorial randomized controlled trial with one arm focusing on intensive versus conventional insulin therapy to manage blood glucose. And the other arm focused on our corticosteroids, fludrocortisone and hydrocortisone in combination compared to hydrocortisone alone, both looking at the primary outcome of 90-day mortality. But for our purposes, we are going to focus on the arm that focused on corticosteroid therapy. When we're looking at the patient population that was included in the COIT study, it's important to note that we have a majority of medical admission again, high rates of mechanical ventilation, and pulmonary infection or chest infection as our main source of infection. We also see higher SAPS-2 score, once again, 
corresponding to about a 50 to 75% expected mortality or estimated mortality in these patients. So again, fairly similar to what we saw for a breakdown in our ANON trial and in our APPROACHES trials. When we look at the outcomes, though, based on that statement, it might surprise you a little that we did not see any difference in mortality benefit. We also did not see any difference in our secondary outcomes looking at vasopressor-free days, mechanical ventilation-free days, and reversal of organ failure with our SOFA score. And it's important to look at these and note that we did not meet statistical significance. However, in our overall survival, we did see a 2.9% difference in mortality that favored hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone therapy over hydrocortisone alone. And when we talk about this study, there are some very important strengths and weaknesses to discuss. Starting with the strengths, this is the first study that compared fludrocortisone and hydrocortisone to hydrocortisone alone instead of comparing it to placebo, allowing us to kind of tease apart that big question that we have of is it our patient population or is it our intervention that is driving some of this unique benefit that we're seeing with the combination. However, a big limitation to note is that because this was designed as a two-by-two two factorial, this study was powered to detect a 12.5% difference in mortality based on the insulin arm, not the corticosteroid arm. And with the corticosteroid arm, we have not seen a difference in mortality that large in previous studies, with the largest difference that we saw actually in 2002 with the Anon et al. trial which only saw a 10% difference. So we are likely underpowered to truly detect any differences in our corticosteroid arm. We also had smaller sample sizes and did not see blinding for the use of our steroids. So from the Coitz trial, our big takeaways were we did not find fludrocortisone as an impactful therapy for mortality rates. However, our rate was similar to what we saw in a non at all in 2002. But because this study was likely underpowered for detecting differences in that corticosteroid arm, it is difficult to fully interpret some of these results. Another piece of evidence that's kind of a knock against fludrocortisone that we need to discuss is the Polito et al. trial. And this study was the first to look at pharmacokinetics of our oral fludrocortisone in our critically ill patient population. This was an ancillary study off of the CRYSTAL study that was comparing crystalloids and colloids for the resuscitation of septic shock patients. And they took 21 patients from this study and looked at in their whole blood samples, do we have detectable levels of fludrocortisone after administration of the medication? And what they found is that in one third of the patients, we did not have detectable plasma concentrations of fludrocortisone. We also saw that there was variable kinetics between our patients and a short half-life of the medication. It's important to note though, that this was a small sample size and also that we only looked at this after one dose of fludrocortisone, when it is known that to get to a steady state of the medication, multiple exposures, doses of four to five administrations is needed to get to that steady state and might impact our ability to have a full understanding of what plasma levels we could achieve. However, this is suggestive that in our critically ill population, an enteral medication such as fludrocortisone might not be well absorbed and brings into question, should we be using this therapy? 
However, the debate continues. Earlier this spring, we had two studies published that brought the spotlight back onto fludrocortisone, despite some of this evidence that has made us question whether or not we should include it in our practices. So we are going to talk about these two trial studies. But why are we still talking about fludrocortisone? Why did these studies bring the spotlight back on it? And a big reason is the pleiotropic effects that we can see with the use of fludrocortisone. It helps reestablish some of that fluid balance in patients as well as electrolyte balances through its action on the kidneys. We can also see immune modulation that is pretty specific to fludrocortisone with IL-1 and histamine releasing inhibition by fludrocortisone, helping again with that dysregulated immune response that we see in our patients with sepsis and septic shock. We have also found in rats that we are able to improve alveolar fluid clearance with the administration of fludrocortisone. So some big benefits that we could see offering some benefits to our patients. But a big one that needs to be considered here is does hydrocortisone offer enough mineralocorticoid activity in critically ill patients? We have previously stated that hydrocortisone acts at the mineralocorticoid receptor. And in patients that are not critically ill, we have evidence that it has enough activity at this receptor. However, a lot of that has been done in patients that are experiencing primary adrenal insufficiency, and some of our dosing has also come from those studies. So the question is, in patients that are critically ill and having inflammation that is contributing to a down-regulation in our mineralocorticoid receptors, Will the use of hydrocortisone offer enough mineralocorticoid activity to overcome some of that downregulation? And that is a piece of evidence that we are still learning more about, but it's important to discuss, which requires us to return to our HPA axis. So again, in our healthy patient, we see the HPA axis functioning normally to produce cortisol so we can target our tissues. In the mineralocorticoid-specific pathway, we can see the RAS system, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, interact with the adrenal cortex via renin activation to cause the production of aldosterone to help the body retain fluid due to perceived hypoperfusion or periods of acute stress. In our critically ill, we can see this pathway also dysfunction, sometimes even separately to the dysfunction that we saw in CIRC. And this can be through either renin being unable to efficiently activate the adrenal cortex, or even the shunting of production from aldosterone to favor cortisol to be able to react to this acute stress. And these can lead to mineralocorticoid-specific insufficiency. And there has recently been a term proposed, CIRME, to parallel CIRC. And in CIRME, this is critical illness-related mineralocorticoid insufficiency. And it can be a constellation, again, of these different pathways of dysfunction that can contribute to a patient being mineralocorticoid deficient. And it's important to know that we still have more information and more evidence that we need to dive into to better understand these pathways a little bit more. But we have seen previous evidence that in patients that are hyperenemic but hypoaldosteronism, we have increased rates of mortality in these patients, implicating that this could be a big piece for us to continue to investigate.
The Bosch et al. trial was the one that brought fludrocortisone and this mineralocorticoid deficiency back to the forefront in 2023. This is a four-year retrospective cohort study that used information from the premier healthcare database for a claims-based study in 88,000 patients with explicit septic shock. These patients received either hydrocortisone alone or hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone based on claims data for administration times. When we look at the patient population included in this study, we see again a majority of medical admissions. We see majority from mechanical ventilation, but lower rates than we have seen in some of our previous trials. And it's interesting to note that in those that were using the combination of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone, a higher proportion of these hospital systems identified as teaching hospitals. We also see a difference in the median duration of our therapies. In our previous studies, we've seen seven days and 11 days of therapy. However, in this study, we saw a median duration of three days. And this might be more reflective of current clinical practice as we treat with steroids until we are able to wean patients from vasopressors and see resolution of septic shock. So this might be something that is a little bit more reflective of our current practice. When we look at the results of this study, we do see a benefit in our hospital death and discharge to hospice, so our 28-day survival, with the combination of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone compared to our patients that received hydrocortisone alone. It's also interesting to see that in our vasopressor-free days and in our hospital-free days, we see improved benefit with hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone over just hydrocortisone alone. So even the areas where we have previously seen benefit with our corticosteroid therapy, we now see further improvement upon those outcomes with the combination therapy. However, with this being a claims-based study, it's difficult to sometimes interpret some of these results as we are unable to get some granular information. We do not have the patient population explicitly defined. We do not know their vasopressor doses. We do not know some of their primary indications. And this makes it difficult to compare this population apples to apples with some of our previous studies to understand what differences do we have. We also do not have granular times of administration. And because patients were allocated to these two groups based on our time of administration, it's difficult to fully see where this allocation can happen as it was within the same calendar day with hydrocortisone being started first and then fludrocortisone being started that led to patients being in the combination arm. So if we have some data that is not as granular, we can see where some misclassification could occur. We also saw a small sample size for the fludrocortisone and hydrocortisone arm compared to the patients that received hydrocortisone alone, which makes it difficult to truly compare the outcomes between these two arms. But from this study, we are able to see that the addition of fludrocortisone demonstrated improved survival over hydrocortisone alone, but we do need further randomized prospective trials to help us confirm the results that we see in this study. The other study that came out recently that has added fuel to the fire here is the Paraccio et al. study. And this was a patient-level meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials in patients with septic shock to look at hydrocortisone therapy or corticosteroid therapy overall. 
it was not specific to comparing hydrocortisone with fludrocortisone to hydrocortisone alone or even to placebo. It was to get a better understanding of how should we be optimally using corticosteroids in the treatment of septic shock. And this looked at, for the primary outcome, 90-day all-cause mortality. And when we look at the patient population that was included in this study, it's important to once again note that we have high rates of medical admission with lower rates of predicted mortality than we have seen in our previous trials and studies. We also once again see primary source of infection was found to be the lung with high rates of mechanical ventilation, but low doses of norepinephrine equivalents. With this trial, looking at corticosteroids as a whole, we are able to see that they were able to look at multiple different subgroups to compare how we use corticosteroids. But the one that we are going to focus on is highlighted here in blue at the top, the without fludrocortisone and the with fludrocortisone. And what we see here is that the point estimates for both of these measures favor corticosteroids over placebo. But we see this reach statistical significance in our with fludrocortisone arm, suggesting that we see improved relative risk of death with the combination treatment of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone. Some strengths of this trial is that it was the first meta-analysis to compare that patient-level data, which allows us to look at specific outcomes for patients and understand what is happening for that individual level versus using study level data for our meta-analysis. We were able to compare the combination to hydrocortisone alone, but this was not necessarily new patient data as the majority of patients that were included from these studies were from some of those trials that we have previously discussed in this discussion. But some big takeaways were that we did not find an impact on mortality with hydrocortisone alone for 90-day all-cause mortality, and that the combination therapy was identified as the best therapy in the network meta-analysis. So this brings us back to our debate. We've had a talk about some of the knocks against fludrocortisone and some of the benefits. So when we're talking about what's kind of led to some hesitancy with fludrocortisone, we have PK evidence that there is questionable absorption in our critically ill, with one-third of patients not having detectable levels of fludrocortisone after a single dose of the medication. We've had differences in our populations that were studied, and because of this, and without a properly powered prospective trial, we have not been able to fully tease apart, is it the intervention of fludrocortisone itself? Or is it the patient populations in which we are studying this intervention in that is leading to this mortality benefit? However, some big pluses in favor of fludrocortisone include that only the studies that looked at the combination and looked at the inclusion of fludrocortisone found that mortality benefit. It's also unclear if hydrocortisone offers sufficient mineralocorticoid activity in patients that are critically ill and could be experiencing downregulation of their mineralocorticoid receptors, does hydrocortisone activity provide enough to overcome that potential barrier? And this leads to my last question of the day, a patient case. BH is a 70-year-old female in the ICU with septic shock from CAP. She's intubated, received appropriate fluid resuscitation, is on appropriate antibiotics, and is on vasopressor therapy. 
However, her maps remain below goal, and the team is looking to start hydrocortisone in her. They are now coming to you and asking about fludrocortisone. So based on what we have discussed today and the evidence that we have reviewed, how strongly would you feel in recommending the use of fludrocortisone in this patient? Feel free to drop a pin wherever you feel on this spectrum. Seeing some pins drop in here, and these results are kind of as I expected. With how much we've really seen a recommendation for and a recommendation against fludrocortisone, evidence demonstrating benefit, evidence that demonstrates no benefit, it's difficult to sometimes fully assess where would we recommend this therapy. And for myself, I do not see from the evidence that we have reviewed a role for routine use of fludrocortisone in all septic shock cases. However, I think it's important that we look to individualize therapy in septic shock. It's possible and we can consider fludrocortisone in specific patients, especially as we learn more about mineralocorticoid deficiency in acute illness, that we could identify a role and understand better how fludrocortisone could help these patients. I think it's also important to note that in the patients that we have studied where we have seen this mortality benefit, such as the patients in Anon and Approaches, this would be reasonable to consider the addition of fludrocortisone because it kind of combines those two pieces that we have been unable to tease out. So we'd have the intervention and we'd have the patient population where we've previously seen mortality benefit and could consider this therapy. And again, those were patients that had primary lung sources of infection, were on high doses of vasopressors, and were medical admissions with multi-organ failure. There are a couple studies that are coming out that might help us understand some of the pieces to this puzzle a little better. Fludris is going to be coming out hopefully this summer. They are investigating different dosing schemes for fludrocortisone and comparing levels of fludrocortisone to see how do we see this correlate with septic shock resolution as well as vasopressor responsiveness to look at how can fludrocortisone offer benefit in our patients. But this will not be the smoking gun that helps us to really determine. I think more evidence is going to be needed, especially looking at our mineralocorticoid pathways and understanding how this might be distinct from CRC in our critically ill. However, in conclusion, we do have patients with septic shock that have inadequate response to initial resuscitation efforts that can be considered for corticosteroids. However, the inclusion of fludrocortisone and their impact on mortality is unclear at this time. Further studies are needed to see how fludrocortisone can impact our patients and offer that mortality benefit, as well as the mineralocorticoid pathways that might advocate for its use. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.